Since washing the feet of his disciples in the midst of this Last Supper, throughout John 13, Jesus has been launching one verbal hand grenade after another. First, Jesus tells them that a traitor was in their midst. Then once Judas leaves the building, leaves the upper room, everything ends up being set into motion, Jesus drops another bomb on the 11 disciples who are remaining. He tells them, I'm leaving and you can't come. Now keep in mind, from Peter's perspective, such an idea of Jesus going someplace that he wasn't willing to follow was simply beyond the pale. In John 13, verse 36, we read that Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you shall follow me afterward. So Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. But Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. I mentioned this last Sunday, but it bears repeating. Regrettably, I think Peter, good old Peter, gets a bad rap for this exchange when he really doesn't deserve one. His question here, why can I not follow you now, was birthed from, honestly, the correct desire to be with Jesus. Even if the journey resulted in a certain death, Peter boldly declares to the Lord, and I think he means it. He says, I will lay down my life for your sake. The problem with Peter's zeal, is that it's centered upon things that honestly he just doesn't know. The path before Jesus that night was one that Peter wasn't ready for. Peter didn't understand. It was a path that Jesus would have to walk alone. You see, only Jesus could atone for sin. Only Jesus possessed resurrection power to conquer both death and the grave. Peter simply had no right nor ability to traverse the path set before Jesus. In Peter's mind, he could extrapolate out the worst possible scenario. But he could never imagine what was going to happen. Peter had no idea what was coming. He wasn't prepared. In fact, Peter was confident, but he was confident in the wrong things. Confident in his will, his sufficiency. I will lay down my life. In fact, Jesus burst his bubble by saying, he would actually deny him three times before the rooster crowed at daybreak. Indeed, major lessons are headed Peter's direction. Well, let's read on. There are no chapter breaks. Jesus has just finished saying this to Peter. Chapter 14, Gospel of John, verse 1. Jesus continuing, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go, you know, and the way, you know. As we unpack this statement, don't forget the context. Jesus has just said to the eleven that he would be leaving them, and more specifically, he said to Peter that he'd deny him three times that very evening. Jesus says here, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Their hearts were troubled. Every man in this room that evening was distraught. Not only that there was a traitor in the midst, but that Jesus would be leaving them. In the Greek, this phrase, let not your heart be troubled, was a directive. In a way, 
Jesus is looking around at these anxious men, these disciples, and he says, guys, stop being troubled. Chill out. And yet notice Jesus' prescription for their troubled heart. He commanded that since they believe in God, what were they to do? They were to continue to believe also in him. David Guzik observes, writing, This was a radical call to trust in Jesus, just as one would trust God the Father, and a radical promise that doing so would bring comfort and peace to a troubled heart. For a complete context to what Jesus is telling these men in the moment, please remember that John is writing his gospel with the assumption that you, the audience, we're already familiar with the other three gospel narratives. The synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke being written much earlier, already in circulation. And when you looked at the other three accounts, the truth of the matter is that Jesus has been crystal clear to these men how this trip to Jerusalem was going to end. On three separate occasions, Jesus has told these very men that he was going to go to Jerusalem for Passover. He would be betrayed, killed, but then three days later would rise from the dead. The grand challenge for these men in this moment was whether or not they believed in what Jesus had to say. These men are deeply troubled, no doubt about it. They're troubled by things they don't know, they don't understand. So, to combat this uneasiness, Jesus, in a compassionate way, a tender way, is encouraging them to place their faith in Him. To place their faith in the promises that He's made. In their trouble and in their uncertainty, Jesus is asking a simple question. The same question He asked you and I in similar situations. Will you trust Me? Notice in the text two particular promises that Jesus gives to these disciples in order to tamper down their anxiety. First, He says... I go, guys, I'm going, but why? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. In a way, Jesus is making sure that they knew his leaving, though inevitable, had a purpose, that there was an overarching reason for all of the things that were about to take place. He would depart, but he would depart so that he could go and prepare a place for them in heaven. This statement, I love it. In my Father's house are many mansions. And, and the word mansion here would be better translated as dwelling places. Jesus adds, if, if this were not so, I, I would tell you. To me, it's fascinating. And it blows my mind, really because of the surety and the confidence by which Jesus proclaims it. Like Jesus here talking to the disciples, he's not speculating what heaven might be like. Nor is Jesus seeking to kind of like, Challenge them to imagine its possibilities. No, Jesus is speaking of heaven. How? He's speaking of it like it's home. He knew it. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. The second promise that Jesus makes is, is he says, in addition to going and preparing a place for them, he says that he would come again and receive them to himself. Not only would this separation be intentional, but it would be temporary. Sure, Jesus was leaving, but they were to find great encouragement knowing he would also be returning. You know, in the Jewish concept of the Messiah, all of this is foreign 
The Messiah was supposed to come to earth, establish a kingdom. You see, the idea of the, of the Messiah, Jesus, going to prepare a place for them, only to then come again at a later date to receive them to himself, this was a totally new revelation. Now, though it's true, this coming again could be a reference to the future rapture of the church. Or, for that matter, it could also be a, a reference to the future gathering of the nations after his second coming. Either way, I do believe there's a more immediate application. Notice here the point of his coming and the result of this receiving was so that where he was, there they might also be. I'm of the opinion, it's my conviction, that the promise here, while it can't apply to the rapture or the second coming, more immediately, I think it applies to the very moment our mortal bodies give up the ghost. How encouraging it is, friends, to know that the very moment you breathe your last in this life, you will immediately be met by Jesus, who has promised to come again and receive you to himself. Jesus has crossed the great divide. But how encouraging it is to know he's not going to leave you and I to make that journey on our own. This phrase, that where I am, there you may also be. It gives us a profound insight into really the essence of heaven itself. Don't make any bones about it. Heaven is heaven for one reason. Now, there's a lot to love about heaven, but heaven's heaven for one reason. And the reason is that Jesus is there. <laughs> this is honestly really what makes the assumption of the unbeliever that they even want to go to heaven so silly to me. Like, why would someone who's rejected Jesus in this life somehow magically want to spend eternity with him in the next? Like, in some ways, for someone to be like, Jesus, I want nothing to do with you here on this earth, if they died and Jesus was like, ha, 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 now you got to spend eternity with me, that would make heaven hell in a certain way. Before we move on, I must say that I have found in the place of my own troubles, in the midst of my own fears, that these same two promises that Jesus gives these men that evening also provide me incredible comfort, and they should you as well. Not only is it true that the existence of my eternal home in heaven places any and all temporal hardships into an appropriate context, that there is a place that Jesus is preparing for me. But the fact that when I pass from this life into the next, Jesus will come again and receive me to himself, man, that yields amazing solace. Jesus closes this section saying to the disciples around this table, where I go, you know, and the way, you know. <laughs> well, it's in response to this statement that we're told in verse 5, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? So Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me.
Jesus has just told these men where he was going, as well as the way to get there, they should know. Well, Thomas isn't sure. (laughs) Thomas doesn't know. And to his credit, he voices up. Jesus, whoa, 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 you're assuming we know. I, I just, for a point of clarity, I have no idea what you're talking about. So can you clarify? Can you specify? I love the fact that Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas. Instead, he lovingly and graciously answers his question. And what results is one of the most radical and honestly controversial of all of Jesus's I am declarations. First, to this question of where Jesus was going. His statement that no one comes to the Father except through me intends to remove all doubt as to where Jesus is going. Jesus is crystal clear that he's, yes, going to depart from this earth. Why? In order to return to the presence of his Father in heaven. Now, pertaining to the way these men might also get to the Father, Jesus answers by definitively stating, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. In the Greek, the structure of this statement, it's more than just being emphatic. The truth is that the verse could be literally translated this way. I alone am the way. I alone am the truth. I alone am the life in counterdistinction to all others who make such claims or promises. Again, commentary, commentator David Guzik correctly observes, writing that Jesus didn't say that he would show us a way. He said that he is the way. He didn't promise to teach us a truth. He said that he is the truth. Jesus didn't offer us the secrets to life. He said that he is the life. If Jesus could have been any more direct in his response, he then adds that except through him, it's impossible for anyone to come to the Father. Again, there is no mistaking the fact that Jesus is issuing here an inescapable claim. Of exclusivity. He's not claiming to be a way to God. As if there were many. Jesus is saying that he alone is the way. To the exclusion of any and all others. You see, according to Jesus, the way to eternal life after our physical death can only be attained through him. Friend, if you hear anything this morning, I want you to hear this. Your eternal destiny will be determined by one thing and one thing alone. A present relationship you have with Jesus. So the question, my challenge, the exhortation, do you know Jesus? And probably more important than that, does Jesus know you? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus articulated a difficult truth along these very lines. He said, not everyone who says to me, and this is at the end, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, and this is heavy, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Undoubtedly, such an exclusive statement stands in direct opposition to our pluralistic culture that frowns upon anyone making such claims of absolutes, mainly Christians. Pluralism. It positions that no one religion has a monopoly on truth. Pluralism states that that to claim as such is both arrogant, if not downright bigoted. How can one position carry more weight than another? The irony of all of this is that if everything is true, then, frankly, nothing is true. And if nothing is true, then life is therefore void of all meaning. And man, in our culture, do we struggle with meaning. Those who hold to such positions, they'll make this type of an argument. They'll say, how dare you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? At the exclusion of devout Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, or for that matter, just good moral people who are sincere, sincerely following their own path to God. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't doubt in any way the sincerity of other positions, other world religions. But there is a reality to life that's inescapable. And that is the fact that while you might be sincere, it's very possible to be sincerely wrong. That was the majority of my high school experience. I went into a test very sincere that I knew the answers. But did that get me any points with the teacher? Not at all. I got docked. But teacher, how dare you? I was sincere. doesn't matter. Let me give you an example. And admittedly, This is an extreme example that's loaded with emotion. But the truth is that the 19 men who hijacked four planes on September 11, 2001, sincerely believed, it was their theology, that their martyrdom that day was going to result in an eternal paradise. They were so sincere in that belief that they were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. Not just martyrdom, but to kill the infidel. Now the irony is that the moment they completed their jihad, they awoke to a much different reality. Hell and torment. If you happen to be such a person, this pluralistic society, You're the type of person that has a coexist bumper sticker on your Subaru. I would advise that you take up your complaint, not with me, but with Jesus. Because he's the one that claimed to be the only way. You see, it's not Christians that say Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the one who said it. In fact... If there are indeed other ways to God, it would be to the exclusion of Jesus based on what he says here. The dirty little secret is that all the other world religions also 
hold to similar claims of exclusivity. But have you ever noticed that it seems only Christians are accused in our culture of being intolerant because of these positions? You know, tolerance in our society seems to be extended to everyone but a Bible-believing Christian. For example, when was the last time you heard a politician go after Muslims on their views concerning homosexuality? It doesn't happen. It's Christians who get targeted, not Muslims. You know the reason that this is the case? And there is a reason. Is that in addition to being the way, Jesus also made another claim. He claimed to be the truth. And in doing so, Jesus makes everything else a falsehood. You see, an absolute truth, like the claim that Jesus made, is by its very definition not just exclusive, but it's intolerant. It's intolerant because it brands every other position as being a lie. And I'm okay with that. I'll own it. Think of it like this. While lies can be very tolerant of other lies, by definition, the truth has to stand alone. You can say in a beauty pageant, all the contestants in a beauty pageant can say, we're all beautiful. And maybe you are until a moment when one lady receives the crown and title of Miss Universe. Guess what we've done? You might all be beautiful, but there's one that's more beautiful than the rest of you. A standard bearer. Again, if you fall into this pluralistic perspective of thinking all truths are equal, that there is no absolute truth, I just want to ask you a very simple question. You say there's no absolute truth. Well, I ask, are you absolutely sure? (laughs) Because if you are, do you know what you just made? You said, I'm not sure of much other than one thing. I'm absolutely sure there's no absolute truth. And in doing so, you made it absolute truth. It's silly. It's silly. Are you absolutely sure? I disagree with you. Who's right? Who's wrong? Especially when our positions contradict. Now, getting beyond these philosophical arguments and considering here the crux of what Jesus is actually saying. Pastor Joe Foch, he made, I think, a... a, A remarkable observation. The way he described this great I am the way, the truth, and the life statement. He calls it an intolerant statement filled with great hope. Isn't it that? It is an intolerant statement filled with great hope. You see, the more relevant question we should consider is not why is there only one way? How can God only, why is there only one? The the more apt question Why is there any way? Why are we so upset there's one way when the truth is there shouldn't be any way? Friend, the very fact that God provided any way for a sinner to be reconciled with a holy God is way more than any of us ever deserve. So instead of being upset there's only one way, why don't you be glad Jesus was willing to die on the cross to provide a way? that you might have everlasting life. God demonstrated His own love towards you 
And that while you were a sinner, what did he do? Christ died for you. Please understand, your acceptance or rejection of Jesus' claim to be the way and the truth, it is of critical importance. Make no mistake about it. In fact, since Jesus also claimed to be the life, your determination of those claims is a matter of life and death. One more tidbit. As you consider who to believe among all these religious systems that make certain claims of exclusivity, certain claims of heaven and the afterlife, consider, well, who's still alive? Like, what makes Jesus so interesting and what sets him apart from every other world religion is that he was like, guys, I'm going to tell you about heaven. I'm going to tell you how to get there. I'm going to tell you all about it. I'm going to tell you what happens when you die. I'm going to tell you about everlasting life. That I am the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I'm going to tell you all of these things. I'm going to make some radical claims, but here's the deal. To validate the claims, I'm going to die, spend three days in the grave, and I'm going to resurrect to life. Because, you know, no one else does that. So just don't take my word for it. I'm going to provide you a measure of, of truth, of evidence. Muhammad didn't make such a claim. Buddha didn't make such a claim. Joseph Smith didn't make such a claim. No one has made such a claim. So how can you take their word for it? Jesus stands in counter-distinction. Well, he continues, verse 7. If you had known me, and the word known is experienced me. He says, if you had known me, you had known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Well, Philip, he says to Jesus, Lord, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. Well, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Philip's question to Jesus reveals a hang-up. A hang-up that we should hardly blame the disciples for having. You see, on numerous occasions, not just in Jesus' earthly ministry, but, but even in this Last Supper dialogue, Jesus spoke about his Father, and then referred to himself separately as a son. And it's with that in mind that Philip now wants Jesus to reveal the Father to them. He literally asked, Jesus, show us the Father. Now, what these men failed to understand, and again, one can hardly blame them, was that while Jesus and the Father were completely separate, they were also one and the same. They wanted to see the Father. That's their request. Jesus' response, he says, I am in the Father and the Father in me. Verse 12, most assuredly, I say to you, Jesus continuing, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Instead of diving into the deeper complexities of the triune nature of God, Jesus kind of gets back to the subject matter, the benefits of his coming departure. Not only has he told them that he was leaving in order to prepare a place for them, and that they need not worry because he would come again and receive them. But now Jesus explains for them 
kind of the practical ministry benefits of his departure to heaven. Look at the text again. He says, those who believe in him will, will do the works that I do. And then Jesus says something awesome. He says that you'll do not just works, but greater works than even the ones that Jesus had performed. Now, this is an incredible statement, but, but let's unpack what, what Jesus is getting at. In the Greek, this word greater doesn't really mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean like more spectacular or sensational in nature. I mean, how could you? Like, how could you perform a work more spectacular than calling forth Lazarus after four days in the grave or walking across water? I don't know about you, but that's not been in my ministry repertoire. So it's not greater in the sense of being spectacular or sensational. Instead, this word greater, it's, it's to be great in magnitude, scope, reach. Jesus says, because I go to the Father, and then we know later commissions the church to go into the world with the gospel, that there is no question the church being charged with the task of doing the works of Jesus will be able to do them in greater scope, in greater reach. Why? Because Jesus was limited in his own physical manifestation. Now, in order to explain how these greater works would even be possible, Jesus continues, verse 13, he says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Admittedly, we find here one of the most twisted passages and maybe all of the scripture pertaining to our day and age. There is a group within Christianity, a large group, who take this specific exhortation and they morph it into a particular theology. It goes by many names. Name it and claim it. Word of faith, prosperity gospel. This word of faith movement historically, was started by a man named E.W. Kenyon in the early 1900s. Rose to prominence, however, in the 1960s by Kenneth Hagin. Those today included in this large Protestant movement are, are men like Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Oral Roberts. You have Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, Paul Jan Crouch, probably the most influential of, of all of these word of faith Preachers is a man by the name of Joel Osteen. Word of Faith Theology teaches that if one believes the Word of God, which is good, and confesses its promises verbally, then the believers shall receive whatever they confess. They actually justify this position by pointing to this passage. Jesus said, right, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You just have to believe. E.W. Kenyon, his famous quote is, What I confess, I possess. Joel Osteen once wrote, You can cancel out God's plan by speaking negative words. God works by laws. You've got to speak it out. Your words have creative power. One of the primary ways we release our faith is through our words. There is a divine connection between you declaring God's favor and seeing God's favor manifested in your life. I would say grace has a, a, a bigger role in that, but let me continue with the quote. Joel Osteen says, Some of you are doing your best to please the Lord. You are living a holy, consecrated life, 
but you're not really experiencing God's supernatural favor because you're not declaring it. You've got to give life to your faith by speaking it out. The fact of the matter is that this doctrine is silly, primarily based on its inconsistency. And I'll point to one, one illustration. In 1998, at the age of 77, John Osteen, Joel's father, who was the founding pastor of Lakewood Church, he started suffering from liver failure. His condition quickly deteriorated by the end of that year, causing Joel to take to the pulpit January 19, 1999. Now, in his message, he encouraged the members to pray for their pastor using the power of positive confession. Let me read you an excerpt. He says, God has promised that my dad will be preaching into his early 90s. God gave him a vision of seven years of harvest. And we're just beginning our sixth year of this special thrust for world evangelism. God has promised our staff that he will bring our kidneys, our pastor's kidneys on a platter of praise. The God who began this universe as a mighty creator is creating what our pastor needs in his body. Well, Six days later, on January 25th, John Osteen died of a heart attack. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, they were praying for the wrong organ. And that's funny. But the point is that it's inconsistent. Yes, it's true. It's true that, that Jesus, in this passage, is indeed promising to not just hear, but answer our prayers. But the problem with such a broad interpretation that God will give you anything you ask in His name, you just got to believe it, is that it fails to consider two qualifications that Jesus specifically ties to the request that you make. Look at the text again. First, notice Jesus, He begins here by saying, whatever you ask, how? In my name. Understand, to pray in the name of Jesus means that you are making your request based upon the merits of His completed work on the cross and you're making this request in accordance with His perfect will. You see, the first qualification for an answered prayer is that you're to pray for the things that Jesus would be praying for. That changes the context, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, I'm thankful, looking back over my life, more for the prayers that Jesus didn't answer than the ones He did. Sometimes I ask for things that I don't know. We're to pray in His name, to ask in His name, to ask on the merits of what He's done and in accordance with His will, not mine. The other qualification is that the answer prayer itself should yield the Father being glorified in the Son. What this means is that not only are you to seek what Jesus would seek in a particular situation, but you also need to consider whether or not the answer to that request would bring glory to the Father. Sometimes our prayers are selfishly motivated. We bring God no glory whatsoever. In a sense... You should ask, what would actually result if God answered my prayer? You know, when presenting his disciples an example 
for how they should pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And more accuracy, it's the disciples' prayer. Recorded in Luke chapter 11, Jesus, he told them that when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Always remember Yes, the Lord hears your prayers and wants to answer your prayers. But the purpose of prayer is first and foremost to spend time with the God of the universe, hoping to align your heart with His and His with yours in a situation. Lord, I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. I don't know what the answer is. I need you to give me perspective. Help me trust. Help me see a greater purpose. So first, the purpose of prayer is, is for our hearts to be aligned with His. But secondly, prayer intends to see His will accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. So often, we see prayer as a mechanism by which we kick down the pearly gates of heaven to get God's will aligned with what I want. That we want our will done in heaven as it is on earth and not the opposite. Yes, we should align our hearts with His, but we should pray more than anything that His will be done, not mine. Well, Jesus continues. Verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. In the original language, the tense that's being presented here, it's active. In fact, the verse would be better translated as, if you love me, you will continue, be continually keeping my commandments. Now, there's no question that obedience is the tangible evidence a person really does love Jesus. In fact, this doesn't undermine grace whatsoever. You are love. For Jesus is to be a reciprocation of his love for us. Meaning that if I'm really experiencing the love of God, it's going to have an effect, a tangible effect. Like obedience ends up being the natural manifestation of me receiving God's grace and goodness. I don't have to obey God to get his love. My obedience is uh, the accurate response to his love. You know, we live in a culture. Where this word love, it's been neutered of its true meaning. You know, sadly, in our day and age, most relegate love to the experiential. And it's in that dynamic that love ends up being nothing more than an emotional experience that's produced through a surge of serotonin that floods the limbic system of your brain. When we're in love with someone, we get these tinglies, a feeling, a euphoria. And we'll see that we're in love as long as we're experiencing the effects of that love. But then once the feeling dissipates, more often than not, people are off to another novelty. 
in order to yield the desired high that they are craving. In a sense, in our culture, love, love has become nothing more than a drug that people are addicted to. We get into a relationship, flood of serotonin, we're high, we're feeling it. And then at some point, the brain naturally normalizes because it can't take too much of a good thing. And it's in the normalization that feelings begin to dissipate. And instead of seeing that love is much more than a feeling, we say, I'm just not feeling like I'm in love with you anymore. And we move on to someone else. If you look at high school relationships, they last about eight months because that's when serotonin normalizes in the brain. I'm just no longer in love with you. No, 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 you're no longer getting the drug that you're craving. You're not looking for love. You're looking for a drug. Now, what's worthy of pointing out is that love, as it's presented in Scripture, sure, it's a feeling. Let's not minimize that. But it's much, much more. Even in this passage, Jesus says, if you love me, look, just the basic sentence structure, you love me. Love, in its context, is a verb, an action. Friend, love. Love is a decision of the will. You love me. Much more than simply being a chemical reaction in your brain. And what that means is that love is active and is designed, therefore, to be independent of the fickleness of our emotions. It's based in commitment, choice. You might say, sincerely, that you love your wife. But friend, if you're not doing anything tangibly to demonstrate a love for your wife, the question begs. And I think it's fair to ask. Do you really love her? In fact, you might be absolutely self-deceived. You know, in Christianity... This warped perspective of love has had terrible ramifications. Like many people today, they claim, again honestly, sincerely, to love Jesus. I love Jesus, man. But the fact is, is that there's no actions that back up or validate the claim. There's no evidence. Like how can you honestly claim to love Jesus? When your current lifestyle stands in direct contradiction to what his word has to say. Oh, I love Jesus. I just don't want to listen to him. Really? Oh, I love Jesus. I just don't think he should have any right to tell me how to live my life. Again, it's Jesus, not me, but Jesus, who in this passage is providing the litmus test. When he says, if you love me. Oh, you claim to love me. If you do, will you keep my commandments? So the question, are you? You know, aside from these things, there's no doubt that the context of this specific commandment is actually in reference to what Jesus has said earlier in this very dinner, back in John 13, verse 34. When Jesus looking around the room, said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. Now, we noted last Sunday that what makes Jesus' commandment new isn't the exhortation we love one another. What makes it new is that we're to love one another, not as we love our neighbor or love ourselves, 
but as Jesus has loved us. Oh man, that ups the ante, doesn't it? Like how can you possibly love like Jesus? Well, the answer is simple. You have to allow Jesus to love through you. It's the only way, honestly. In and of yourself, such a manifestation of love like Jesus is impossible. Selfless love demands as little of self as possible. The very essence of our love should stand out in this world because it doesn't originate in us. It originates in Him. It's an otherworldly kind of love because it doesn't originate in this world, but finds its origination in Jesus. We need Jesus if we're to love like Jesus. We can't do it on our own. And the commandment's massive. Love like I've loved you. I don't, I, to be fair, I'm not sure I can do that. Well, it's, it's with that in mind that Jesus says in verse 16, Guys, I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus, I can't, I can't do these things on my own. And Jesus is like, God, I totally get it. No, you can't. The good thing is you won't have to do it on your own. I'm going to send a helper. And it's there that we'll pick up next Sunday. So, Father, Lord, thank you for your word.